Did y'all um, hear on the news this morning that the new study that if you drink coffee three times a day, it's like three times less, uh, this is real, three times like, less likely to get certain types of cancer? Anybody read, hear that this morning? That's pretty good news, huh? <clears throat> they didn't say what happened if you add like half a pound of sugar and half a gallon of cream in there as well, but that just, I'm going with the coffee good news part and ignoring the rest of it. Um, <clears throat> hey, you know, we, can, we have the freedom to do this, and even though we don't understand the mechanics of prayer, and, um, and I'll mention this later in the sermon, we don't understand why God allows the kind of suffering he does, and, and, and uh, we, we're left at the end of something like a storm where, where people lost their lives just down the road from us. Um, and, and dealing with that, we can pray. And, uh, and so I'd like for us to just take a minute and pray for our brothers and sisters um, in Canton and that surrounding area that really got hit hard by the storm last night. And um, I'm sure that there are pastors and leaders who are facing a very different Sunday morning uh, this morning than we are. So, um, so let's pray for them and lift them up real quick. Um, Father, uh, we, we do thank you that you are God and that storms are something that are not out of your hand. Um, at the same time, uh, we are often confused by how you uh, make those calls. And Lord, I, I know you've got um, a bigger plan in mind. You've got an eternal plan in mind. And Lord, I, I pray that you will accomplish uh, the eternal salvation of people, um, even through the, the tragedy of a, a storm and the loss of life last night. And Lord, I know that we have family and friends um, in that area who have been touched by this. Um, and Lord, uh, I, I pray that you would pour out the comfort as only you can. I pray you would give wisdom and insight um, in the midst of all of it. Lord, and I, I pray you would help us to know um, how to be answered to prayer sometimes for people as well, how to um, encourage them and come alongside them. And, and I pray you would comfort our hearts even um, as we remember that, that you are the God of all things. Um, and you get this even when we don't. And so, Lord, um, in faith, we trust you that you know what you're doing, and um, there's a greater plan in all of this. Lord, we ask this um, in faith through the power of your Spirit, and according to uh, the will, your perfect will, in the name of your Son, amen. Um, <clears throat> all right, so we will, at the, near the end of this sermon, I'll be, uh, we'll have a couple, somebody run up here and use the mics again. We'll have a time for you to share testimonies, um, specifically of ministry, that where you have seen ministry lived out. Uh, maybe in people that you're here in the room that you would say, like, I've, I've seen ministry lived out in this person or that person. And, and uh, so I just want to prepare you again. We're going to do that um, each of these, at least next week as well. Maybe, maybe even Mother's Day we'll do that. But um, uh, anyway, so if you would have that in mind as we're getting there, just be thinking about that um, as well. So um, here we are. We're discussing this conversation of refresh and refocus, and the different things that go along with that. And, and I feel like I'm, I'm very much so learning as we go through this as well. What made sense in thinking about it is that even though we discussed the heading of Sabbath, Shabbat, meaning rest, um, meaning, no, excuse me, not meaning rest, meaning stop. Um, nuach means rest. Um, Shabbat means stop. And so when the Bible talks about celebrating a Sabbath, that word there literally means to stop, to cease, to quit, cut it out. And that's, that's the idea presented in Scripture there. That being said, um, it, the, the, the concept here of being refreshed, I believe now, after studying it, transcends mere rest. So we are called to rest, we are called to stop, but we have this eternal um, requirement, these ministries that we're called to as well that don't ever cease so what's the idea? And then on top of that, looking last week at the verse that talks about 
God Himself resting and being refreshed. Clearly, refreshed doesn't just mean, hey, I'm worn out and I need to take a break, I need a nap, because God is not worn out, and yet He still was refreshed. And so I want to engage in that conversation. So we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 11 and 12 today. If you've got a Bible, you can turn over uh, in that or, or scroll down or whatever, um, to Matthew chapter 11. It'll be on the screens as well, but it's, it helps you to take notes. Um, I recommend you take notes on every sermon and Sunday school class you're in, if for no other reason, because you never know when God's going to call you to teach, and uh, then all of those things that other people have already done will be uh, gold to you. Um, so I highly recommend it. It helps us learn as well. Um, <clears throat> so here we have in this account, I'm going to lay the, the foundation here, Matthew, who is a tax collector, and uh, very humbled, apparently, by the fact that he had been called to minister. Um, in fact, we never get Matthew's opinion on anything. Matthew never offers up his own thoughts. He never says, and Matthew said, or and I said. Um, John does that constantly in his gospel, um, but Matthew doesn't do that. But even more shockingly, as, as uh, Pike Weisner pointed out about a year ago, um, that, that, uh, that Matthew refers to himself as a tax collector in his own gospel. That when he lists the apostles, he lists Matthew the tax collector, which would have been a hated profession, how, um, how humbled he must have been to have been chosen by God to be one of his sent people. Um, so that's Matthew who's writing this stuff. And, and what's happening in this account is Jesus has been traveling around and starting his ministry, and, and he then goes to Nazareth, and he has kind of a, 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 it's a less than positive reaction in his hometown um, because they want him to put on a miracle show for them, and he's uh, not willing to do that. And so then we have Jesus then coming back to his disciples and sending them out. So he sends them out to accomplish ministry on their own in twos. And, uh, and then he starts doing the same thing. He starts traveling around the cities of northern Galilee, where Jesus spent most of his time. I'm in the northern, in, in the northern end of Galilee. The three cities that are in particular referenced are Capernaum, which is where Matthew was from and Peter was from and, and others, Bethsaida, and Chorazim, and, and you can visit these today. In fact, when we go in June, we'll be visiting at least two of these, Lord willing, Capernaum and, uh, and Chorazim. So while he's doing this, he's traveling in these places, his relative, John, is arrested. John the Baptist is arrested. Um, and this triggers Jesus to start a different conversation. So he starts talking about John, and he starts talking about that message. Um, and, and after spending some time with the people of these cities, he apparently is angry. And so in this passage, we see Jesus cursing these cities. Um, it is the woe unto passage. As Jesus says, woe unto Chorazim and Bethsaida, Capernaum. He goes so far as to say that in the final judgment, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these three cities. Um, that's pretty significant. I mean, again, if you can't wrap your brain around that, Sodom and Gomorrah were considered the worst of the worst. They, they were, throughout history, they were the example of the very worst, the least faithful. And these people, typically the people in these three cities, thought of themselves as pretty noble, apparently um, pretty devout Jews. In fact, they are literally surrounded, the Sea of Galilee, um, on one side of the Sea of Galilee, just to the west of them, um, looking at it correctly, just to the west of them was a town named Susida, or Hippo, which means horse, um, and it was a member of the, it was a part of the Decapolis, the ten pagan cities. The other direction, Tiberius was still probably still being built. Tiberius, a Roman city, another of the pagan cities, just down the road. And these these cities thought of themselves as really the serious Jews. They're not the religious Jews; they're the serious Jews, and they they're they're all this 
in the midst of their faith, and Jesus here tells them bad news. They've been given every reasonable sign to believe, but many, many of them had refused. After saying all of this, Jesus breaks into a prayer. So here he has these crowds of people who he's just leveled these charges against, and he then breaks into prayer. In Matthew eleven twenty five, it says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, we've talked about how Jesus, in multiple places, kind of references this idea that, in fact, you, you really can't believe in him. You really can't put your faith in him without at least the mindset of a little child. There's something about children, the humility of being a child. Um, and as we, you know, as we experience the little kids this morning, there's some humility about them. They are willing to take in new information. Have you noticed how bad we are at that? I mean, we, we lose something as we become adults. There's a freedom. There's, there's something that comes with becoming adults that makes life harder on us to engage openly. Um, one of the things that we've noticed as, you, as we get taught to do play therapy, so as therapists, if I, I was taught to do play therapy, and discovered that by far the hardest thing about play therapy is playing. Um, when you're an adult, it's hard to play. Now, you, you may be thinking like, no, I play all the time. Really? So, you sit down on the floor with your kids. Don't you really start cleaning? <laughs> I mean, what you really do is you start organizing while they're... I mean, you're playing and you're kind of with one hand playing, but over here you're really hanging up close. Or you're putting things in the toy box. Or you're, as they're doing one thing, you're doing something with the other. And we lose this. Everything becomes goal-oriented. Um, I've mentioned before, one of the funniest things ever, that I had, and I had never thought about it either, was my friend, uh, my neighbor coming over to me and saying, um, so I had a funny conversation with my children this morning. They were playing with the Play-Doh, and they were mixing in the colors. And I stopped them, and I was like, stop, don't, don't mix the colors. And he said, his five-year-old son said, why? And he goes, yeah, I got nothing. Mix the colors. I mean, like, <laughs> I have no idea why we're not supposed to mix the colors. What possible difference does it make? It's all going to turn dry and crusty in 15 minutes anyway, and you're going to have to buy all new. It, it, Play-Doh is disposable. Let's admit it. It just is. We try to save it. We try to keep it. No, it's not. And so you just, he's like, why, where did we lose the ability to color outside the lines? Like at some point along the way, we lose. there's something about us as adults that we, it's like it hardens in us and it's harder for us to engage in new stuff. It's harder for us to take in a new message. So we need that. We need to be humble enough that they are, they're ready to assimilate new stuff and new understandings. Children, now there's a sense in which the childishness of children, we, for some reason we hold on to that. Um, but the childlikeness, the ability to say, to be at wonder at new things and to understand that we don't know and that we need someone to help us understand it. Like sometimes we lose that. It's just pride. Um, I grew up in this understanding in, in an interesting way. And I've, I've talked about this before, but it's actually hard for me to not, it's hard for me to get out of this mindset when I listen to people who disagree with this. It's hard for me to even place myself there. So I grew up around professors now, my father was a forestry professor. All of his friends were professors of something. And, and typically, like, you know, uh, you know, they were bug people or they were animal people, like a biology or animology or whatever. That, like, these were, this, were, this was their, their scientists. They had PhDs in this. This is what they did. And, and we would go out and we would, we would wander around in the woods or he would do a nature walk. This was my favorite. We'd go to a park and dad would volunteer to do a nature walk at the park and 
And we'd be wandering in the woods and there'd be a whole crowd of people following. And dad would be talking about all the different plants. It's, it's really pretty amazing to sit, watch him do this. And, and it, but always, at some point, it seems like always somewhat. So here I'm a little kid wandering in the woods with my dad. And of course, I've heard all this a thousand times, right? Because when you grow up with a professor, they, they sit and talk in 55-minute segments. If you've never, that's just what professors do. And so, and so you would, we would, we'd, and we'd be at some tree, and he would say, hey, this is a short-leaf pine tree, and here's what they're used for, and here's how we know this, and, and whatever. And, 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 my, and, and somebody, and, and I always was, <laughs> for some reason I have locks in my head, some brain-dead redneck would always say, at some point would go, I, I think that's an oak tree. And I'm, here I am, 10 years old or whatever in the crowd, and I would be like, don't, no, don't start this. Like, I mean, listen, he's forgotten more about this tree, and I, I, mean, I mean probably this individual tree, than you've ever known about any tree, all trees combined in your life. Don't, don't get Dr. Leg started on this type of tree. And, but dad would stop and he would explain like, well, sir, and he was always very patient. Well, sir, actually, here's what this is and here's why and here's the scientific name behind it and here's how they came to those scientific names and here's what they use it for and here's the Indians, what they did with it. And it's, and you're like, golly, I mean, he, he's, so you, I grew up with the understanding that you don't argue with certain people about certain things. And so when, you, when you've got someone who's a PhD in something, you don't, you don't argue with them about it. And I think I was just taught that so intuitively that I don't have a hard time with that. When I'm with an expert and they tell me this is how it is, I kind of just go, oh, all right, that works for me. I mean, that's a, I'm good with that. The chances of you being wrong is so tiny compared to my chance of being right that why would I disagree with you about that? I mean, could you be wrong? Sure, absolutely. It's possible. I mean, in an alternate universe that my dad could name the wrong tree in East Texas, but it's not, it's not going to happen. And so why would you argue I get that intuitively, and so there are things about God like prayer, like human suffering that I don't get. I don't get that. But my assumption is I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt as the expert. He's the one who knows. And, and however long he would have to take to explain it to me, I probably just don't even, I'm not going to get it, right? I mean, if, if dad sits down and explains to you everything about a tree, you're going to zone out at about 12 minutes, and you're going to be like, oh my gosh. I, I've already, I'm full. This is all I can know about this tree. I'm done. And he's got another 48 minutes to go. And so for, for you to go, okay, I, I get this. That's good, good. Okay, believe you. I believe it's pine tree. Believe it's pine like there's a There's a part of me that just, I feel like that's part of the childlikeness we can have with God. I don't get you. I don't understand sometimes what you do. But I'm counting on you to know what you're doing. That you get this even though I don't. And if you were to sit down and try to explain it to me, listen, I probably wouldn't follow you anyway. I probably wouldn't understand it anyway. That's what we get at the end of Job about human suffering. That's, that's the concept. I think that's part of what Jesus is talking about here with children. Is that when the child in us is willing to say, I don't, I don't get all this. I don't understand all this. But I submit to the fact that you do. I'm willing to give to you the benefit of the doubt on this. So I think, I think what Jesus is teaching through this, that's, that's an important understanding. And we need that. It's also part, when I get there, it's also part of why our children need us teaching them. It's part of why we, our children need us investing in them. is because they're still open to it. And most of us really aren't. If, it, if it's outside of what we're already comfortable with, it's going to be tough. Then he switches audiences. So he's talking to God. Then he switches audiences and starts speaking to them. All things, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Wow. And no one knows the Son except the Father, 
And no one knows the Father except the Son. It's a pretty limited relationship. If you don't know one of them, you can't know the other one. Jesus says, except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So here Jesus has the keys to the kingdom, doesn't he? He is the one who can reveal the Father to us. And and we study this and look at it. Some people are just unwilling to accept what Jesus is offering here. I, I am the one who decides whether to offer. Now, we have a gap, and your Bible may even have a paragraph break here. All of that's been added in later. But if you understand it, I think these two passages are very connected. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. I think there is an implied, therefore, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, I think, as I reveal the Father. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is one of the most intriguing passages in the entire Bible. Confusing and tough, we're going to come back to it in a minute. That's going to be my main point. It's the pivotal passage here. So I'm going to move on to keep laying the groundwork. And at that time, chapter 12, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck grains of, heads of grain and eat them. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, biblically, this is not accurate. Um, there's no Bible, there's no such command in Scripture about plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath law is so general. What what God taught in the the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament, the the Hebrew Scriptures, that what He taught in there about that you're supposed to rest and not work on Sabbath. Over time, one behavioral limitation is offered. One. And that is, don't start a fire on the Sabbath. That was the only real behavioral limitation given on the Sabbath by God. Now, there is an account of a guy later who's picking up sticks. So he's picking up sticks, and they catch him doing it, and they bring him to Moses and say, hey, if we caught this guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Now, notice, they don't know what to do with him. So they bring him to Moses. Is, is, does this count? Is he working? Is he failing to rest? Is he wrong? And Moses' answer essentially is, I have no idea. I don't know either. So we're going to go to God, and we're going to ask God, is this breaking the Sabbath or not? Now, catch that this is an individual case. Well, in a minute, if we want to use it as a precedent, fine. But I don't think there's anything in the Scripture to indicate that this is necessarily even a precedent, this example. But they go to God. God says, you know what? Yeah, he's breaking the Sabbath. You need to execute him. So they do. Pretty tough. Which just goes to show you, once again, how stubborn a race we are. And I don't mean Jews. I mean humans. How stubborn a race God gives the instruction to rest, and we still can't obey, right? Isn't that the, that that is childishness. Now now I'm 45, naps seem like a good idea. But boy, do my little kids resist them. Hey, you need to go lay down and have a nap. No, like what would you possibly be thinking to say no to a nap? Like what's, what's wrong with you? So like, anyway, here, win the lottery. No. So... This is a, this is, I don't, I don't, I don't get it, but I, I, but I was the same way. I fought them tooth and nail at that age. That was a, that child, God is offering a good thing and we say no. Now, so even if you're going to take it as a precedent, which I don't think is there, no starting a fire and no gathering sticks on the Sabbath. 
I think it is clear that God is saying, listen, I judged this man's heart. He was gathering sticks in rebellion. He'd probably start a fire. So yeah, execute him. But notice, there's nothing else in there. Now, the Pharisees allegedly, and I've heard different rumors of this, and I don't know how to find out the truth of this, but allegedly the Pharisees by this time had so many sabbatical laws. I've heard there's like 400 of them by, the, by Jesus' time in history. Um, in fact, without going into detail, I've heard there's a really funny series of them that, where apparently there was a guy who wanted an egg on the Sabbath, and, and they, <laughs> there's like one law after, like there's a law that says like you can't cook an egg on the Sabbath, and then there's a law, like 10 later, there's another one that says you can't cook an egg on a rock on the Sabbath, and then like 15 after that, there's like you can't cook an egg in the sand on the Sabbath, and, and like it keeps, you, you know, there's one poor guy who's, who's just constantly like, but I want an egg, and he keeps finding new ways to cook the egg on the Sabbath. You don't, there's nothing about cooking in the sand, fine, now you can't cook it in the, like that's welcome to humanity, right? So maybe, maybe they had made up some rule, but they've got some, at best, obscure law that they've created. They're trying to connect to Scripture, and they're wrong. And Jesus confronts them on it hard. He says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? Now, let me just stop for a second. He's going to bring up a passage. This is a tough passage. And, and anyone, you want to watch a commentary struggle, have, have read this passage. This is tough. It is a troubling passage in the Bible. David is on the run from Saul. He, Saul has gone certifiably crazy, as, as saying that as a professional. He is diagnosable. Um, he is trying to kill David. He's throwing spears at him, even though David is completely, completely loyal to him. So David is on the run. A handful of people follow David. They have no food. They have no supplies. They run to a, a, a kind of a temple thing that they have, and they get there, and, and Nob, and they, and they go to the, he goes to the priest and says, do you guys have any bread? And, and the, the priest says, no, except for the bread of the presence, what's called the show bread. Um, a dozen loaves that are cooked very specifically and, and even uh, displayed very specifically. There's very specific rules about the show bread. And one of the rules is no one but the priests eats them. So David shows up and says, do you have any bread? And the priest says, only the show bread. And he gives it to David. Now this is really out of line. So he, Jesus references this. This is a troubling passage. And in the passage, by the way, it does not declare God's judgment on this. It just gives us the history. Hey, this is what happened. And so David takes the bread and leaves with his men. Then Saul, by the way, shows up later and slaughters all the priests who gave David the bread. And they gave him Goliath's sword as well. So that's, which we know that was wrong. But so he, Jesus mentions this, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus then explains straight from Scripture an example when the law is broken. And Jesus here doesn't even really say, and that was good. He just says, here the law was broken. By the way, it's insulting when you're talking to a Pharisee to ask the question, so have you ever read this in the Bible? Because, of course, they have. And, of course, they're struggling with that passage. And Jesus picks a, a hard passage for them. And, and then Jesus really brings together this, this fascinating little thing. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? Listen, the priests work on the Sabbath. They work like crazy. That's, that's, like, that's like telling church staff, right? Hey, you need to rest on Sunday. Well, yeah, right. Like, that's going to happen. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done on Sunday. But it's, but it's even worse. The priests are very, very busy on the Sabbath, doing all kinds of stuff on all the Sabbaths. And, and Jesus says, how come they're not found guilty of breaking the Sabbath? Never thought about that? 
The essence is this. Sometimes there are things that are more important. Look at verse, verse 6 is amazing. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus has referenced the, sanct, the sacredness of the temple, the sanctity of the priesthood, and then he says, something greater than the temple is here. This is straight up blasphemy to the Pharisees. They would have been so offended by this. The gasp that would have risen from the crowd of Pharisees, however many there were, that Jesus proclaiming, clearly proclaiming himself as greater than the temple. He's going to get worse. It's going to get worse here in a second. The essence is this. Some of these are important rules. Absolutely. The showbread is an important rule. It shows the sacredness of the temple, but some things are greater and more sacred than the temple. This is, this is big stuff here. Jesus is majorly picking a fight back with the Pharisees. Of course, he keeps going. And if you had known what this means, so this is also insulting. If, by the way, you had read the prophets and you knew what they said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So he tells them, you don't know scripture. You don't understand this. You, yes, okay, so you're trying to follow some narrow little law that you wrote, and you're condemning people for breaking it, and here's what I'm telling you. You're, asking, you're breaking something that's not even sacrifice, and yet you lack mercy. Mercy is more important, he's saying. And then if nothing else was clear, so doing what God has called someone to do, it may be more important than the legal niceties. You are focusing on my disciples picking grain, which is not necessarily against the law, but you are unmerciful, unloving, and uncaring. And those are offensive. Then notice Jesus says this line, as if there was any other discussion to be had, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Here's, here's, what, here's probably the part of the point that he's making. You realize that guy who was wandering around picking up sticks in the time of Moses? And Moses goes to God and asks for God's guidance on what to be done with him. Who was Moses going to? Jesus Christ, Almighty God, unified with the Father and the Spirit, is who answered that question for Moses. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is his servant. He is the master. You don't argue with him on this. Listen, I started the thing. It's my invention. And now literally you're lecturing me about my disciples doing something that isn't even illegal by the law, except the law you invented, about Sabbath? I mean, this is, this is offensive. And so Jesus takes a stand with them. It's going to get a little bit worse here. Jesus is, is really going to pick a fight here right now as he gets, I mean, he, you can tell this is right after he's just condemned all of these people for their lack of faith. And now they're confronting him on this. This is probably not a good time to pick a fight with Jesus. Mercy is more important. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the King of the Sabbath. So he goes from there and enters the synagogue. So now we get a, clear, a more clear picture. Jesus is going to the synagogue here. And apparently the Pharisees were as well. And they run at each other on the road as the disciples are cut. They cut through a field to do this, probably gleaning. So they glean from the edge of the field, eat a little bit of this stuff. The Pharisees confront them on the way to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Um, he is frustrated with them for their misunderstanding of Scripture, for their abuse of what it means to rest. And so hungry, the disciples grab a few seeds off of some wheat or something and chew on them. And some Pharisees already on their way to the synagogue see this and complain to Jesus. 
Jesus enters the synagogue, and a new level of the fight ensues. Now they're taking it public. The Pharisees are going to take it public. But catch, this is, a, this is a, the simplistic mindset, the childish mindset that says the rule is always right. The law is always right. Of course, by the way, we, we always mean that right for everyone else. We're all narcissists at heart. The rules, of, the rules are very, very important when applied to other people's lives. Somehow they end up not being quite so important when applied to our lives. But this, this idea is what Jesus is confronting here. I mean, I was, so after I taught on this, um, Eric came up, who's a judge, and, and he said, yeah, the, the idea that you would be walking past a no trespassing sign and you would see a pond on the other side of the no trespassing sign and someone is drowning there. It is, it is morally right at that point to break the law. Of course, you cross over the no trespassing sign. It would be immoral. It is illegal to do so. I mean, it's justifiably illegal. It's illegal to do so, but it's immoral not to. There's a higher, there's a greater thing present here. There's a greater cause. Jesus is saying that ministry is, this, is a great cause here as you understand it. Listen, so he keeps going. Starting to fill in the gaps here. So, a man was there with a withered hand. <clears throat> and the Pharisees asked him, in front of this man, in the synagogue, the Pharisees say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they could accuse him. They try to create another no-win situation for him. And he said to them, and by the way, probably should don't read this like a textbook. This is probably through gritted teeth. Which one of you, if you have a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, would not take hold of it and lift it out? So if your sheep was drowning, you would pull it out. Which is, by the way, probably illegal. But it's a sheep, and the sheep is important to you because it represents money. Meanwhile, you're about to tell me it is immoral, illegal, for me to heal someone on the Sabbath. That's the point you're going to make? Because that's, by the way, the answer they believed. So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? He proclaims it. So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out, and it was restored, healthy, like the other one. There is rest, and in the midst of rest, there is morally right things. I believe, once again, we're seeing an example of the fact that refreshment has to do with living out the calling, even in the midst of rest. Here is the call of Jesus Christ. I can choose to show you the Father, he says, so come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Here's the key. Labor, weary, heavy laden, you're carrying a load, come to me and I will rest you and take my yoke. I'm going to explain that in a second. Why you would say to a weary and heavy laden person, hey, here's a yoke and a burden. That sounds mean. But I want to start with this. Those who find rest for their souls. You find rest for your soul when you take on his burden, his yoke. I'm going to come back to that real quick, but I want to take a second and do what I'd said. You've been thinking, I want to hear two or maybe three examples of places where you've seen ministry lived out and where you've seen people who have taken on the yoke that God has for them, the burden that God has for them. They're trying to live out Jesus' yoke. So, Come up here and grab a mic and let's see if we get a couple of hands of people who'd say like, yeah, I've got an example of that I'd like to share of where I've seen that. Anybody? Got a hand? And if you've got, if you another one does, go ahead and raise so John can come have it ready for you. Go ahead and share. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
My name is Sherry Skinner, and I'm involved in work that's done at the Christian Women's Job Corps here in Tyler. And all of you are partners with us. And I wanted to share with you how God is at work. I want to start with a praise about the goodness of God and how he can open doors and windows and pour out blessings that we can't even begin to imagine. At Christian Women's Job Corps, Thursday was our last day of the session that we have, and it's about a 10-week session. And on this paper that I have are the names of the women that have accepted Jesus as their Savior for the first time. On Thursday, we had three women that became Christians. But in the course of a 10-week period of time, we've had 14 women that committed their life to Jesus. In addition, we've had an additional 14 women that rededicated their life to the Lord. So in 10 weeks, this church has been helpful and involved in ministry that have brought 28 people to Jesus with 56 people enrolled. Mm -hmm. That is really powerful, and we praise God for that. And many of you in this congregation have been involved with both prayerful support and financial support, but we also have members here that give of their time and energy. Charlotte Latham, Gay Brookshire, Shelley Judd, Cecilia Ellis, Betsy Hogerson, and John Redfern. John led us just last week in just amazing prayer and worship. So my request as part of your body is that you would lift these women up in prayer because these are brand new baby Christians that are just now beginning to learn the path. Oh, lest I forget to add, we didn't anticipate this, but God did. And he sent someone to us who is going to be doing a 13-week Bible study called Experiencing God. And many of these brand new Christians are going to be involved in that. So I just wanted to share with you the mighty work that our God is doing and that you are a part of. Thank you so much. Yeah. Another one? We'll do this again next week as well. Um, but we have another example of someone who is, you've seen living out ministry. I'm one of that, those women that went to that uh, course, and I rededicated my life to the Lord, and I'm here because of that program. So thanks to everyone for supporting CWJC. Absolutely. Excellent. All right. Let's, um, again, be thinking about that, where you've seen it lived out. Next week, we'll do it again, and maybe on Mother's Day as well. But... Um, so I want, I want to share with you this last little bit to close up this thought because I want to make sure that you're seeing um, this yoke uh, concept, I think, correctly. So, um, Blake, let me get you and David to come up here real quick. <clears throat> um, so to understand, right there's good, and then face them. Um, and so one, one concept that Jesus may have been talking about here is the idea of a double yoke. Um, and so the, the reason for a double yoke was to take two beasts of burden like these two, <clears throat> and there you go, scoot over a little bit that way. No, away from each other, away from each other. There you go, like that. So you can see 
So the way it would be is that you would, you would yoke two animals together so that the, where they moved, and there would be two, if they were leaning over, and I'm not going to make them lean over like cattle or anything, but so you see on the screen that there would be two neck loops to hold them in place, and then wherever one of them went, the other one would have to go as well. And so, and they would equally share whatever they were pulling. So what they were pulling would be attached to this, and, and that's what they would pull. Now, part of this is, this may be part of what Jesus is saying, is that I am, I am offering up to, to be the other person on the yoke. You need to take on my yoke. Clearly, this is one of the distinct possibilities that Jesus is saying here. Take on my yoke. I will teach you. I will show you. You will learn from me. I'll be the lead oxen, so to speak. Make sense? That's part of what he's saying, why it would be lighter, easier, correct. And by the way, a poorly made, you can see these are carved. These would be made for the individual animal. And so it would have to fit them perfectly. A poorly made yoke would kill the animal. And so this, that has to be exactly right. Okay, Blake, you can sit, not you yet. So, <clears throat> so now take, it, take this one like this and put your hand. Here you go, hold it like that. Now, it's certainly that one of the points Jesus is making is that the yoke that we carry... When you come to him, so if you imagine there being stuff hanging off here, burdens hanging from this yoke, is that you're saying you come to Jesus, there you go, weary and heavy laden, and Jesus says, hey, you're, you seem very weary, you're exhausted, you're, the, the burdens you're carrying are very, very heavy, you need to take on my yoke. Now, is there anything about this scenario that it makes sense that what he means is add another yoke? Does that, does that seem like that would even be possible? No. If, in order for David to take on this new yoke, a lighter one, a, a one that's a correct for him, a, a single person yoke, what's he going to have to do? Right. So he's got to get rid of this yoke in order to put this one on. Right? This is an exchange Jesus is teaching through here. The refreshment for our soul, the rest for our soul, comes not in not having a yoke or a burden. Thanks, man. You can have a seat. Not in not having a burden or a yoke. It isn't about having nothing. That's not an option. It is in having the right yoke, the well-made yoke. My yokes are well-made. The right one to carry. And the correct burdens that he has for us. So whatever these other burdens, these other yokes that we carry, not the, and again, it's not that they're bad. Yokes, the other yokes may not be bad. For yokes from parents, some of them are bad. There's empty ways of life handed down to us by our parents. The yokes of being right all the time, the yoke of being enough, the, the insufficiency that our culture consistently pushes upon us, the yokes of grandparents or of family lineage or of prejudices or of our own perfectionism, the yokes we try to lay on others. When Jesus is, the only other passage where Jesus, or one of the other passages where Jesus is really angry is in Matthew 23. And that's when he tells the Pharisees, you manufacture burdens and then hang them around people and you don't help them carry them. We do that sometimes. People have manufactured burdens and laid them on us. Maybe, maybe church has put burdens on you that aren't from Jesus. It happens all the time. And so whatever it is, these burdens that you're carrying, these rules, these, these, these deals that you've got that, that you're supposed to carry that other people have laid on you, this is such a significant part of the Christian walk. Now, we don't get it because we don't identify with it because we have things like running water and petroleum vehicles. We have, we have slaves. They're called cars. And we drive in places, and they do all the work for us. Imagine if we had to walk everywhere. So for most of Christian history, most of human history, the way you got water to your house was with one of these. Not, 
not with by turning on a faucet. So you can imagine if you have to do this all day. So think of all the water that your family uses. Now imagine if you had to haul that every single day. How real this, this analogy would be for you. Especially if you live in a desert like Israel and you're having to haul from the spring, which may be the center of town or outside of town. You're going to carry one of these suckers. And how much can you carry? Not enough. You have to go multiple times a day to, to water your animals and to water your garden and to water your people. And this would have been a very real picture of exhaustion of having to carry this stuff all day, every day. Listen to, listen to that with that heading that Jesus is saying, try my yoke, take off the old one. This is important. Listen to this. this. And so John Bunyan, um, who wrote the, the allegory, Pilgrim's Progress. This is the conversion moment, really, in many ways for the character named Christian. Let me read this to you. I want you to connect with this. We can understand the idea of burdens and yokes psychologically, spiritually. It's hard for us to do it physically, but psychologically or spiritually. Listen to this. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, at the bottom, a sepulcher. A sepulcher is an open grave. So I saw in my dreams that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and so continued to do so till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher while it fell in and I saw it no more. This is part of what it means to be a Christian is to take the burden to let God remove it from us the burden of our own eternal significance, the burden of our own value, the burden of our own purpose, the burden of our own salvation. These things fall away and they vanish. This is a trade Jesus is offering. It is not no burden. It is the right burdens. It's not no ministry or no work or no effort. It's the right ones. It's His. That is where our soul finds rest. Our body may find rest reclining. Our soul finds rest bearing his burdens. So take off those yokes that you have. What are they? I don't know. Ask God. Discuss it with him. Take it off. Lay it down. Take on his instead. He has, his is more impossible, but he is faithful to accomplish the impossible through us. I do want to use this as a time. When, when we say now, as we have a time of invitation... I don't know what the Spirit is doing with you, whether it is you've been carrying the burden of your own salvation, no matter how long you've been in church. And so it may be embarrassing for you to come forward and admit, I've been working for it all this time. I've been the one trying to make it happen, and I need to lay down that burden and put my faith in Christ to save me and let that burden fall and experience the lightness and the freedom that comes with that. Maybe there are other burdens you're carrying that aren't for you. The burden of needing to be right all the time, of needing to be loved all the time, of needing to be approved of all the time, whatever those are. Burdens handed down to you by parents, whatever. The, you, then there's a good sepulcher right up here to come up and let them fall or at your seat, whatever. If, if yes, and, and now if we're, as we do this invitation time, if you need to, um, if this is a time that you would like to join the church and, and come alongside a dysfunctional family and all of us learn together how to live with Christ's burden rather than others, I hope that's part of what you will do. If you are a member of this church, and you've never signed up to help invest 
and the future, the current and future generation of ministry leaders in, in, in our nation and around the world, meaning in our children's programming, in our children's ministry. Um, it looks like Rebecca's back there herself. We've got, you can sign up this morning. If that's what you do as your invitation time, go do it. Um, that's totally appropriate that you need to go do that. This is an opportunity God has given us. It is our burden as a church. It's the one God has given us. So pray um, and ask God for his yoke, for his burdens. Father, we come to you through the power uh, of the name of your son who said he could reveal you to us. And, and honestly, only he can. And I pray you would give us the hearts of little children that with humility we could accept that revelation. God, I pray that you would help us to let all of the other burdens slide off. The burdens of our own past, the burden of our guilt, the burden of our pride, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you would help those to fall off our back into your grave for eternity. And instead we can be lifted up and the right yoke, your yoke, could be placed on us to be lived out through the power of your spirit, what you've called us to. Lord, I know you've called our church to bear this ministry opportunity, these burdens, these yokes, to raise up and help support one another's kids and our families. God, I pray you would guide us through this, that you know what you have for us. So we leave it in your hands, in your son's name. Amen.